My name is Matthew Wayne Selznick, and this is Sonatotem. Episode 22. This time around, folks, it's an Ask Me Anything. In episode 21, I asked that you, dear listener, send me your questions so that we would have some content for this episode. And uh, two people responded. Rebecca Burns had a bunch of questions. Um, So thank you, Rebecca, for providing what will be the bulk of this episode. And J.C. Hutchins had one question that uh, neatly kind of overlaps with one of Rebecca's. So we, uh, we've we got an agenda. Uh, I've got my work cut out for me. So tiny bit of business uh, just for the historians and the record keepers. Today is Thursday, September 10th, 2020. And I am at the park where I recorded the last maybe the last two episodes, but I'm, I'm going ahead and doing it in my car this time around just for a little bit more sound deadening. Uh, I'm recording on the phone again. And uh, so that means that there might be a little bit of weirdness, a little bit of noise. I, I'm trying my best to hold still in the car so I don't bump noisy things. But at some point, I am going to have sips of coffee. So... <laughs> All right, so question number one from Rebecca Burns is, have any of your story characters been influenced by real-life people, friends, enemies, colleagues, family, authors, politicians, actors, etc.? If so, who, how, and why? And do they know, or is it a secret homage? Well, <laughs> the, the the short answer is yes, of course. Friends, enemies, colleagues, family, authors, politicians, actors, etc. I uh, yes, all of the above. Friends. Well, I'm going to to steadfastly maintain that my first novel, Brave Men Run, was not a Mary Sue. Which, if you're not familiar with that term, it's It's when the author basically makes himself the hero of his own book. However, Brave Men Run was a very, very, very textbook example of write what you know. The book was set in uh, 1985 in South Orange County, California, at, in large part, a high school in a planned community. I was in high school. I graduated uh, high school in, in 1985 in a planned community in Southern Orange County. And the name of that town was Mission Viejo. Still is. <laughs> I changed the name of the town to Abbock Valley. I don't I don't I just had some donuts. I don't remember where I came up with the name Abbock. Oftentimes, I will uh, take an existing name and 
flip syllables or move letters up and down the alphabet. I, I don't know. In that part of the country, in that part of the state, the O'Neill family was a big deal, uh, as was these Seegerstrom family. But in Brave Men Run, there's an O'Neill Park or O'Neill Parkway. I'm, I'm going by memory here. That book is uh, 15 years old. So, yeah, I, Abbott wasn't clearly based on any of those historical folks. But I digress. We're talking about characters. So all you have to do is look at the dedication page, or the I think it's the actually the acknowledgments page at the end of Brave Men Run. All those people I thank, most of them are in the book. My best friend in high school, Jeff Carter. There's a character, um, I forget what his name is, in the book. His last name is Fonseca. He's loosely based on a guy I played uh, in bands with, Gus Contreras. Hi, Gus. Um, I don't think Gus knows that. We don't really talk. (laughs) Lena Porter in... And I want to make this clear because Lena Porter is the love interest of Nate Charter. And many people have said, well, Nate Charter is just, Nate Charter's is just Matt Selznick. And that's expected because the book is written first person. So everything is I, me, very natural to assume that Nate Charter's is a surrogate for me. And sure, I took elements of my own life to, to fill out Nate Charter's, but, uh, point I'm trying to get to, um, Lena Porter, who is Nate's love interest. Lena is a composite, and the more I wrote her, the more she really became her own character. However, when I picture the character in my mind, I am picturing a real person, and I think I've, I've mentioned this in the past. I don't know. It's been, like I said, 15 years since the book came out. Heather Martindale, who we all knew as Portia back then, many of us had self-assigned names back then. Yeah, Heather was sort of the visual template for Lena, and that's that's about as far as it goes. But yeah, Jeff Carter, David Bailey, Jason Talbot is David Bailey in, in Brave Men Run. Uh, or the other way around, the character of Jason Talbot is based on David Bailey. And the sequence in Brave Men Run, where Jason and Nate play a very elaborate game of doorbell ditch on Mark Teslowski, that is based on <laughs> almost, I mean, apart from Nate Charter's superpowers, that's based almost beat for beat on a uh, an actual doorbell ditch session that me and David Bailey and Mark Reynolds played on some poor unsuspecting fool. Yeah, you know, we were kids. Anyway, yeah, so uh, also in that book, the teacher who gives sort of a, a guided lecture for the class the day after Declaration Day Um, He's based on Paul Pfluger, who was my contemporary world problems teacher and uh, a great influence on me. The the guidance counselor, I think her name is Ms. Elp in in the book, 
was based on my guidance counselor. I was a very delinquent child in high school. My guidance counselor, Ms. Everett. So, yeah, absolutely. Especially in Brave Men Run, I pulled from a bunch of real-life people. Those are just off the top of my head. Same thing with Pilgrimage, my second novel. Some of those characters in Pilgrimage that show up are really just composites. And, um, oh, I forgot to mention Byron Teslowski, based on a kid I knew in junior high school named David Tarnowski. But I swear, you know, in my memory, I mean, that's a long time ago. It even was a long time ago when I wrote the book. So it's more of a physical template kind of thing and general sort of gross behavior. And by gross, I mean coarse, uh, not detailed behavior, not deep behavior. They're templates. One thing I don't do is cast my characters. I see some writers suggesting this as an exercise to actually cast your book as if it was a movie and you were selecting, you literally select actors to play the roles of your characters. I I don't recommend that. I would never want to do it for myself because I don't want to see my characters as characters being portrayed by someone else. I don't want to say, oh yeah, this character, if, if you think of Jennifer Aniston, she'd be perfect for the, no, I don't, I don't want to think of Jennifer Aniston when I think of a character in one of my stories. I want the characters in my stories to be as much as possible, fully realized and their own thing. So that sure, if eventually a film version was made of a particular work and someone read it, some casting director read it and said, Jennifer Aniston would be perfect for this part. See, that's the opposite. That's the other way around. That's me having created such a fully realized character that some other party sees a good match. Does that make sense? Politicians, celebrities, there aren't too many politicians so far in what I've written. Uh, But since a lot of what I write, especially in the Sovereign Era story world, is essentially alternate history, yeah, certainly real-world characters will show up. They've been referred to tangentially um, so far. But yeah, they, they, they will and do show up. So I think that's the who, the how, and the why, and do they know it, or is it a secret homage? The, the, the last part of that, do they know it, I think many of the people who've read Brave Men Run, who know me, and who knew me in the 80s, probably recognize themselves. Jeff, and I don't know if David ever read the book, but you know David would certainly recognize Jason Talbot. I, I put some of David's most obnoxious quotes in Jason Talbot's mouth. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that's an easy one. So there you go. And now, uh, Rebecca has a bunch of questions, but I want to branch over to J.C. Hutchins' question because it is related. Now, J.C.'s question was, what is your process for crafting believable, relatable characters in your fiction? And contrary to the answer that I just gave Rebecca, uh, the process does not actually involve just thinking of people from my real life and, and you know, tweaking them somewhat. That's certainly part of it. But 
my process? And I appreciate this question. I appreciate that both of these questions are about character because if, if my work has been positively received or complimented for anything, it's been my characters and their dialogue, which I appreciate. I take that compliment to heart. I recognize it as one of my strengths. So what's the process? I, I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago, which I will link to in the show notes. You can go to and look up Sonatotem. Or go to sonatotem.com and it'll take, you, it'll take you to the page on mattselznick.com where this episode is, episode 22. I'll have a link to this blog post there. But the, the post was about specifically creating believable antagonists. But the essential idea does apply to when I'm creating any kind of character. Uh, when I advised creating believable antagonists, my suggestion was to think about the absolute worst possible thing you could think that one person could do to another. Just the most vile, horrific, offensive, nasty, cruel, sadistic thing one person could do to another. Really think about it. And then think about what it would take for you to do that thing. What would it take? And I don't mean like, you know, what sudden slight or insult or betrayal might lead you to do something you regret. I mean, what would it take to take the person you are and turn you into the kind of person that would do something just abominable. And I'm talking abominable, like, like, you know, baby cannibalism, abominable, just horrid. Okay. And that's for the bad guys, right? That's, that's, and, and it's a truly difficult, challenging, disturbing process. You have to allow yourself to go places that you would not, in your right mind, intentionally go because it's painful and it forces you to really examine who you are, how you are who you are, all those things. And again, that's just for the bad guys. For, for, for the rest of your characters, for, for, your, for, for your protagonist or whatever, same thing. I mean, really think about who you want these people to be in the service of the story and kind of reverse engineer it. And I think it's important that, honestly, I think it's important that I open the door for a second because it's getting sweltering in this car. But we can't have it open forever because of that beeping. Here we go. Yeah, that's better. You might hear a little outside noise. Okay. So, J.C. Hutchins, here's what I do. And I'm going to try to use examples from Light of the Outsider, my latest novel. Light of the Outsider, these are not people who are in any way related to people from the real world. Because it's not the real world. It's, it's, it's Gundifae, the Shaper's world. It's, it's another planet. And these characters aren't even actually 
Homo sapiens humans. So I can't go back to high school <laughs> necessarily. So we'll start with Talon in light of the outsider. Talon is a cell song, right? Kind of, you know, he, he, he sings for his supper or tells stories for his supper on the street and in taverns and whatnot. A bard or that idiotic chorus player on The Witcher. But I, I did not want Talon to be like the character on The Witcher. The exposition foil or the, uh, you know, the, the feckless sidekick. Um, Talon is one of the driving forces in the story, and he has to have very strong motivations. So Talon suffers from massive survivor guilt. Talon is, as the story opens, stuck, stagnant, one of these people who has this lofty, noble, long-time goal, but is frittering away his time on a day-to-day basis, not really ever doing anything to get closer to his goal because he doesn't feel worthy because he has outlived everyone he cared about, loved, or cared for him. And he's like, I don't know, 20, he's a very young man. So he has not had a long life, but it has been a traumatic life. So there's my, my character, right? There, there's the person who he is. I know that his transformation is going to involve acting as though he were worthy, faking it until he makes it, if you will. But that core personality, I don't have survivor guilt, but I certainly understand procrastination as a form of avoidance, as a form of staying safe. I've written about it, right? Uh, I'll post uh, a link to that blog post too. Procrastination is a symptom of fear, putting things off so that you don't have to face the result of the thing. You know, if you never do the thing, you never have to be judged by, uh, judged for it. So I understand the idea of allowing your days to be filled up with ultimately meaningless things when it comes to your long-term overall goal. So I was certainly able to understand Talon from that perspective, even though you know, I haven't had anywhere near the tragic life that he has had. So you kind of take that core issue that he is afraid of actually pursuing the thing that's important to him. And I let that sort of spread out across the landscape of his psyche, <laughs> like, like, a, like a flood. So what else would that touch? What else would that affect? How else would that cause him to behave? So in my estimation, uh, he would be someone who deflects, someone who covers up his pain with charisma and with uh, humor and with being glib and 
literally through uh, hiding behind his his songs and stories and whatnot of others hiding behind the mask of performance um very rarely letting anyone see who he really is and the one person he does want to share everything with he has chosen someone who demonstratively does not care for him in any way like he wants them to or that he does for them so he again has sabotaged himself from ever actually reaching the happiness that he could have by selecting someone who is unavailable for that happiness because if he were to actually have a chance at that happiness he would it would it would destroy his worldview that he is at his core not worthy of all the things that he wants right so from that basic idea of survivor's guilt and what that might do to a person's psychology again i i I, that's the best way i could think of it is you just let it sort of spread out across the character's behavior and personality and see where it seeps in and see what it soaks and see what it erodes and then there's your character part of the process in kind of sussing all that out is i had to think about some some logistical things right okay well if he's a cell song if he makes his living telling stories how did he learn that skill and if he has survivor's guilt well what the heck happened to him that caused him to have that guilt how did most everyone he loves or loved him end up dead and he survived. That is a story for another day. (laughs) I may end up actually telling that story in prose, uh, in a short story or a novella or a serial. I don't know, but I will say this. If you were one of the people who direct pre-ordered light of the outsider, before I put it up on Amazon, you received the document that I used to create and, and again, suss out these characters. I wrote, and this is part of the process, okay? This is, I'm, I'm coming back around to the process. I, for every one of the major characters in the book and some of the minor important ones, I kind of free wrote a history for each of those characters, right? From essentially their life story up until the moment that the book begins. And this is helpful in a number of ways. I was able to see, like, when this character was this age, these other characters were those ages. It was this year when this happened for this person. It was this year when that happened for the other person. Actually, once I did all the write-ups, I put together a little spreadsheet so I could see where these characters were in relation to each other throughout their lives, which really helped me get a, a snapshot. And I'm not saying I referred to it like while I was writing or anything, but I had a good, it was a good reminder. Like, Oh, this character is in their fifties while this character that they're interacting with is in their twenties. Um, that kind of thing. Anyway, 
uh, yeah, I, I, I sort of free wrote the life story of each of these characters. So for Talon, uh, I, I wrote about all that stuff and it's great because in the writing and keep in mind, this is an original fantasy world. The writing of their life stories helped me discover things about the world and about the society that they live in that I had not yet discovered. So the process of fleshing out these characters and making them believable, writing their biographies from a perspective of their psychological origin, uh, also helped me to flesh out and make more believable the world in which they live. I know that there's a difference between explaining how I did it and teaching how someone else could do it. And some of this stuff is, is black box for me, for me, even. I know that I'm good at this. My next step to serve all y'all is probably to really pick apart how it is that I'm good at this so that I can effectively teach you. I will say this. It helps to approach writing fiction as acting. Okay? I absorb a lot <laughs> of interviews, especially spoken or, or filmed interviews of actors and performers of all kinds, especially actors, though, for two reasons. Number one, a really good interview is so much more than just the anecdote, anecdote, funny story, picture movie type of thing you'll see on, on like late night TV, like, you know, Jimmy Fallon or Colbert or whatever. Those are pitch shows. They're not, they're not there to talk about themselves as much as they are to, to check off boxes that their publicist, or oftentimes they are contractually obligated to check off. I'm talking about interviews that go deep. I strongly cannot recommend enough um, two podcasts when it comes to actors and performers. The first is uh, WTF with Mark Maron. Mark Maron is a comedian and an actor um, who, for, gosh, over 10 years now, has been interviewing other comedians and actors in his garage and the occasional president of the United States as well, but mostly actors, comedians, and musicians. And these are actual conversations. Sometimes tears are shed, okay? They are deeply transparent. People know that the garage with Mark Maron is a safe space. And wow, some of the stuff I've heard there. So you get to hear not just how these actors approach their craft, but their own background and psychological upbringing and mistakes and lessons and all that kind of stuff, right? The other one is Talk Easy with uh, Sam Fargoso, I think it is. This guy is young. I don't have any idea how he 
has built the clout to talk to the people he talks to, but he gets the same caliber of guest that Mark Marin does more on the film acting, directing side of things. And the same deal. He has a way of, of bringing these people out and, and giving them a safe space where they, uh, they reveal. And the reason I think it's important to listen to actors is because these are people who understand what it means to do those things that I was talking about earlier, getting into the head of your character to the point where it might be disturbing or where you have to look at things about yourself that you wouldn't ordinarily look at, good and bad, to craft this secondary personality that you slip on to portray the role. So understanding the personalities personalities of the people who put on the personalities, uh, it's 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 very very useful. You know, I'm going to add a third podcast. Um, Inside of you with Michael Rosenblatt, Rosenblatt, Rosenstein. Damn it! Ah, the link will be in the show notes. He's the guy who played Lex Luthor of all things on Smallville, and he has a great, deeply personal interview show. His is a little longer and a little more rambly. Sometimes, Michael, I love you. I love your show. But sometimes he talks more than the guest does. So be aware of that. But hey, it's still actors talking to actors. And you're still getting a very personal insight. This is all a very long way of saying you need to study. You need to study humans. You need to study humans and understand and begin to learn that every human has this story full of tragedy and contradiction and pain and joy and and love and loss and yearning and all of those things are relative to the person in question And so the more you kind of soak up and understand as much as possible actual people and the more you dig and dig and dig and try to understand yourself, that's going to lead to believable characters. Because here's the thing, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on this and I'm rambling a little bit. I am making this up as I go, trying to, to learn the answer as I give it to you. Again, it's acting. You, you have to, I'm going to say you have to. I strongly recommend that when you are writing your characters, every time, it depends on the point of view choice that you make in the particular work of fiction. If you are in the head of a character, if you are telling the story from the perspective of a character, a particular character, for however long, a scene, a chapter, a whole book, whether it's first person or third person limited, third person omniscient or second person present or whatever the fuck, right? You're in their head. For the time that you're in their head, you got to as much as possible be them 
It's method acting. So if you're a 17 year old vampire hunter, uh, a, 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 a mixed race supernatural detective. Hi, Scott Roche. Um, whatever. If the character is a different gender, honestly, and I might get some flack for this, but gender, unless it serves the story, I don't, I don't think worrying about, uh, well, how am I trying to put this? It's okay for men to write women. It's okay for straight people to write gay people. It's okay for gay people to write straight people. It's okay for women to write men. Because under the skin, despite, and I'm not ignoring the fact that we have cultural and life experience and personal identification, things that absolutely change the way we all see the world. But what I'm trying to say is, underneath all that, we are all people who are dealing with the same essential existential issues. And if you can tap into those, you can write anybody. And if you believe it while you're writing it, if you believe that you are really, as much as you can, in that person's personality while you are writing them, they're going to come across as distinct and individual and believable. I, I think I've answered that question. Yeah, I, I think I took a long time answering that question, but I think it was worth it. How long have we been going here? Wow, 42 minutes already, and there are three more questions to go. You know what? Maybe, um, maybe I do one more question, and what do you know? We have our next episode, too, because Rebecca has three more questions for me, and two of them I could see kind of being themed together in a specific episode. So, Rebecca, I'm going to save question two and question four for, episode, for the next episode. I will tackle question three and three and a half from Rebecca. Here is Rebecca's third question. Who is your biggest cheerleader? Who encourages you to persevere as an artist? This is a very difficult question to answer. It's one of those questions where <laughs> answering it honestly might hurt some feelings. I gotta open the door again. So I'm just sweltering in this car. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna cop to the to the to the possibility that my perception has a lot to do with my answer of this question. Okay. Who is your biggest cheerleader? I, I'm I, I have to say that I have one friend who I don't actually hear from a whole lot these days. 
one dear friend who most times when I do mention something publicly, social media, whatever, uh, about my creative work or, or, or something I'm planning or, or something that's happened, they almost always make a point to respond or comment in, in some very encouraging, uplifting way confidence boosting cheerleading <laughs> uh, really that's that's yeah cheerleading is perfect uh, and and so that's and, and I gotta tell you there's there's no um, downplaying how valuable that is um, there are days when uh, a, a, a like from that person on one of these kinds of posts or a heart emoji or a you can do it, and they make all the difference. So yeah, there's that. Who encourages you to persevere as an artist? Well, you know, that that's there's a bit of the same answer there. The thing that, that I need to unpack is that the people who I am day-to-day closest to Rarely, even if they they start as, they rarely sustain as biggest cheerleader person who encourages you to persevere as an artist. And that's a bummer. I wish that I was in an environment where I received, (laughs) let me put it this way, where I felt like I was, hmm, how do I put this? I'm, I'm hemming and hawing because I am on the privacy line. I'm on the respect others privacy, barbed wire, tightrope. <laughs> Look, okay, I can put it this way. I would love to have I won't say I need, but it would be very fulfilling to me and helpful to me if the people who care most for me in the world and who are in all ways closest to me, if those people expressed, more consistently expressed, I'm going to figure this out, more consistently expressed faith in the validity of my creative endeavors. How's that? Like so many, and you know, this, believe me, nobody knows more than me that this sounds very much like, oh, poor writer, poor artist, isn't appreciated. And just shut up and do the work, right? Um, But look, I know this is not an uncommon issue. Significant others, family members, partners, spouses, whatever. It's totally understandable that they would look upon this creative thing that one does as of secondary or tertiary priority to all the other things that need to get done or, or, or must be done in the day-to-day life. And it comes down to this. Creative things 
take time away from that other person. And creative things for 99.9% of the people that I'm talking to right now don't pay the bills. Don't bring in the primary income to support the environment. So for the last 20 years or so, the partners in my life have started out encouraging and supportive and eventually at best treated writing or creativity as a luxury and at worst viewed it with resentment. And again, I'm talking about people across the last 20 years. I think it's been, yeah, I can go back to the late nineties, early aughts, the last time that, that I had a, a situation where I felt that kind of understanding and camaraderie and encouragement in that particular area of life. And look, I can see their point (laughs) because it's hard to have somebody say, yeah, I don't really want to hang out right now. I want to tap away at the computer or do what to anyone else's eyes may appear to be play or just wasting time. To me, it's an investment. To me, it's, it's, it's one of those, <laughs> to circle back to the character Talon, it's one of those long, I'm working at those long-term goals that my future depends upon. And I am, uh, it took me years to figure this out, but I am an introvert. I thrive, and I always have, and it's taken me to, 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 to be in my 50s to realize that Number one, this is actually the thing. And number two, it's okay. And number three, it's important. (laughs) And I'm going to, you know, I need to craft my life so that it serves my introversion, introvertedness, (laughs) rather than trying to craft my life in a way that the introversion is accommodated. Does that make sense? So, but as, as an introvert, someone who enjoys his solitude, someone who needs time in my own head, not just to create, but just to recharge and to relax and rest away from others, away from the obligations and concerns of others. That makes me difficult. I get it. That is not Probably not good relationship material for most other people. <laughs> so, you know, I understand. And when you see, you know, when, when as a partner you start off reading a person's work and thinking, wow, this is pretty good, and gee, he's a great writer, and, and telling your friends, and then a book comes out, and objectively and subjectively it does not perform as well as the expectation might have been even if 
I, as the writer, try to manage those expectations. Uh, yeah, I get it. It can be very easy for the people in your life to simply not get what it is you do. And by you, I mean we. And by we, I mean me. Uh, <laughs> simply not get why you do what you do and why it's so important and why you make, why I make the choices that I make. So my greatest cheerleader for my creative work, in terms of people that I personally know, is a friend that, that I'm not all that close to anymore, oddly. Um, and slash but I also I do I get great solace and soul coal soul coal for my engine from the people I don't know so well the people like Rebecca Burns who takes the time to write four very detailed questions the 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 podcast that I I was just on and the host James telling me repeatedly that it was one of the most I'm going to paraphrase here but one of the most fulfilling episodes that they'd ever done people coming out of the woodwork and writing a lovely review of light of the outsider most recently you know if you're listening to this and you're a reader or an author or any kind of creator when an author asks, hey, if you've read my thing, please review it. Please review it. It, it, it matters. I'll tell you, honestly, sometimes the, the semi-anonymous review on Amazon or Goodreads or whatever is actually more valuable, more encouraging, more of a validation than the oh-so-necessary everyday faith that one needs from one's family and loved ones. Because if you don't know me from Adam, and you're only praising the thing that I made, then you've, you've got no skin in the game, you know? You know what I mean? You're not going to offend me by saying it sucked. Because I'm not going to have to wake up and have breakfast with you the next day. <laughs> right? So, yeah. My community of friends and fans out there, the people on my mailing list, my Patreon patrons, you listeners of the podcast, and the people who review, who read and review my work, y'all are very encouraging. You're not my biggest cheerleaders, but cumulatively, you make an impact. So thank you. All right. I am running out of storage space on the phone. Uh, <laughs> so it's time to cut this short. It's not all that short. If you'd like to leave feedback on this episode, you can find episode 22 of Sonatotem at sonatotem.com or mattselznick.com. Just uh, leave your feedback in the comments for this episode. Check out the show notes while you're there. I will have relevant links to the things that I've discussed. Uh, also, you can leave feedback by sending me an email at matt at 
mattselznick.com. Or you can uh, also record a little uh, voice message on your phone and email it to that address, matt at mattselznick, S-E-L-Z-N-I-C-K.com. Share this episode on social media, please. And um, tag me if you like. Uh, It's at Matthew Wayne Selznick Creates on Facebook and Instagram and at Matt Selznick on Twitter. And a lot, a lot, a lot. Of course, review the show on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you're absorbing this. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show in the podcast player of your choice so you always get the latest episode when it comes out. I feel like now I should be advertising socks or mattresses or home security or something like that. But instead, I'm going to say, Rebecca Burns, J.C. Hutchins, thank you for your questions. Rebecca, I will cover the next two questions in episode 23. Should be about a week or so. Meanwhile... Thank you again. My name is Matthew Wayne Selznick. And do take care. 